Hello everyone, I'm Ian Abernethy and welcome to the latest ianabernethy.com podcast. First thing I'd like to do this month is thank everyone for the feedback on last month's podcast. Uh, as you know, we did a question and answer one. They're always popular episodes, those, because they're quite wide-ranging. We covered a lot of different topics. Um, so thank you to everyone for the feedback. I'm glad that you, that you liked it. And in particular, thank you to everyone who found the fake jingles and sponsorships funny. <laughs> um, it was glad to know it wasn't just me. I, I, had, some, I had some funny feedback on them as well. Uh, one guy who'd nearly crushed himself by having a laughing fit when he was bench pressing. Uh, one guy who had to pull his car over because he was laughing that hard. <laughs> so um, I'm pleased I made people smile. So that's really good. Thank you for the feedback on that. Other thing I've got to mention is that uh, for the seminars for next year, I'm now pretty much fully booked for 2016. Uh, we're also now, we've got dates into 2017 as well. So if you are wanting a seminar at your dojo, it's important that you let me know sooner rather than later because... I mean, it's a good problem to have, but I hate not being able to kind of fit everybody in, really. Uh, and also, one other thing is just, we seem to be getting this happening quite a lot, is I'll put photographs up of seminars and things on Facebook, and there's always somebody who goes, oh, man, you were just round the corner for me, I wish I'd known. And, and, and the reason why you probably don't know is, um, if you're not subscribed to the newsletters and you're relying on Facebook, there's a good chance you'll miss things. Um, we've got, what, what, 13,200 likes on, on Facebook, but not every post we put on there finds its way into the news feed of all 13,000 people. It's just not the way that Facebook works. I don't know how the algorithm works, but some of them it will cho choose to show you, some of them it doesn't. Which means, as good as it is, Facebook is a pretty hitty-missy way to get, um, information out there and for you to remain in the loop so if you go to the website uh, ianabernethy.com you'll see a join the newsletter thing um, that'll mean that from me you'll get a, a, a newsletter once every month or so you can unsubscribe to it anytime you like but that always includes all the seminar dates articles videos um, information on these podcasts so if, if you want to be kept in the loop uh, you can't really rely on facebook you need to uh, to join the newsletters so I think that's the only kind of bits of or comments I've got really for this introduction. Uh, this month we're discussing uh, martial virtue and how the martial arts develop character and virtue and how they don't and some discussions on some of the sources on uh, what virtues martial arts are supposed to develop. So it's a fairly lengthy podcast because obviously it's a fairly in-depth topic. So um, I hope that's okay with you and obviously you know I won't be offended if you listen to it in sections <laughs> um so yeah so i'll keep this introduction pretty short because i say the, the bulk of the podcast is uh it's fairly long so uh i do hope you enjoy it okay so let's discuss uh martial virtue In this podcast, we're going to look at the idea of martial virtue and the idea that martial arts can develop character. The philosophy, origin, utility and nature of virtue is something that's been discussed for eons. And a detailed discussion on the very nature of virtue is certainly beyond me in this podcast. My aim in this podcast is to look at some sources we have which address the virtues associated with the martial arts and to give my take on those sources. I'll also address martial virtues generally, state why I think they're important, and talk about the mechanisms by which martial arts can, and don't, develop virtue. 
So it makes sense to begin with what Gichin Funakoshi said was the ultimate aim of karate. Funakoshi said, you know, the ultimate aim of karate lies not in victory or defeat, but in the perfection of character of its participants. In this quote, Funakoshi is encapsulating the Do concept, or the idea that martial arts have the ultimate goal of improving character or making a person more virtuous. In previous podcasts, we've talked about the perceived tensions between Jitsu and Do, and I'd refer you to those podcasts, but in brief summation, the following is the common view, or at least in the West it is. So Do are the martial arts as character development, art or sport, which are entirely ineffective in actual conflict. That's what most people think Do means. And Jitsu is the martial arts as amoral combat skills, which, while working in conflict, have no concern as to the use of those skills or the character of those applying those skills. Now, this is an entirely false dichotomy, and good martial arts can and should be both. If you read the writings of the past masters, they support my view, and I'm told by those that live in Japan that this Jitsu-Do split does not have the same connotations imposed on it as it does in the West. To them, the suffix of Jitsu or Do has more to do with the age of the art that's been practised. Art to come after the Meiji Restoration would be part of Gendai Budo, uh, modern Budo, or Shin Budo, which is new Budo, and are therefore likely to have the Do label. So it's more to do with the age of what's practised rather than kind of the nature of it. And um, uh, Hirono Ozuka, the founder of Wado, I think he's got a really good summation of this in his book uh, Wadaru Karate. So Utsuka wrote, he said, In the past, Kenjitsu, Jujitsu, Archery were all called Jitsu. And during the Meiji era, the late Jigoro Kano began to call Jujitsu Judo, and Kenjitsu Kendo, and so on, incorporating, uh, incorporating way into the name instead of technique. So, you know, Do instead of Jitsu. How then is Do and Jitsu different? Looking at the characters for both, they intend some kind of logic. Do and Jitsu intend the same objective. There is no difference in using either term. During the Meiji era, it may have seemed more prideful or established to use Do rather than Jitsu. This may be so because Do seemed to emphasize the mental aspect more than just the technique itself. To take the view that physical skill is inferior to the mind in importance would be utterly pointless and futile. In order to address both skill and the mind, it should not matter whether Jitsu or Do is used. If Do sounds more correct, then that's fine. However, no bias should be placed against Jitsu. So, you know, I'm with Otsuka here. You know, it doesn't matter what term is used. You know, they're effectively interchangeable, and a good approach to martial art will include both. So, Kano, the founder of Judo, and arguably the, the, the originator of the Do approach, you know, he said that there were three levels of judo. So this is kind of my paraphrasing of what Kano said. So we've got uh, lower level judo, which is judo as an effective form of fighting, or the jitsu side of things, if you like. We've then got middle level judo, which is developing oneself mentally and physically through the austere training found in the lower level. And then we've got upper level judo, which is utilizing the improvements in mind and body gained in the middle level to serve others and to contribute in a positive way to the community and society. So we can see how Kano saw a progression and an unbreakable link between what we may label as Jitsu and Do. So back to the Funakoshi quote we started with, you know, 
through a cap, you know, Funakoshi said, the ultimate aim of karate lies not in victory or defeat, but in the perfection of character of its participants. Notice how he doesn't say the only aim of karate, but instead states the ultimate aim, which infers that karate can have many aims, including victory and defeat, but that the highest aim is perfection of character. Now, this is in line with Kano's three levels of judo, which is unsurprising given the huge influence that Kano's thinking had on karate, due to it being largely aped by Funakoshi and the other karateka of the time. The development of character for the betterment of the individual and the wide society of which they are part is not something that runs contrary to the development of martial skill. There's no choice to be made between good character and practical skills. A healthy and effective approach to the martial arts needs both. On a purely practical level, behaving in a way that the society around you supports means that you are more likely to have the support of others, and it also means you're less likely to come into contact with violence. Funakoshi touches on this in his book Karate Do My Way of Life. This is Funakoshi's quote from that book. He said, I have always stressed the point in my teaching that karate is a defensive art and must never serve offensive purposes. Be careful, I wrote in my early books, about the words you speak. For if you are boastful, you will make a great many enemies. Never forget the old saying that a strong wind may destroy a sturdy tree, but the willow bows and the wind passes through. The great virtues of karate are prudence and humility. So here we see Funakoshi emphasizing the virtues of prudence and humility as being a practical way to avoid violence. No, he's not alone in that either, because you know, in a moment we'll look at what Matsumura had to say on the subject. But I'd first like to quickly look at how virtue and character relate to one another. The dictionary definition of character is the mental and moral qualities distinctive to the individual. But of course, you know, an individual can have both good and bad character. So someone with good character could therefore be thought of as someone who exhibited virtue, essentially to someone who virtue was habitual. Today the word virtue has connotations of something meek and mild. You know, A virtuous person could be seen as someone quiet and inoffensive. However, that's not what virtue really means. The word virtue finds its origins in the Latin word ver, which means man. The related Latin word virtus means to be manlike, to have valour, to have good character. The Latin word became virtu, V-I-R-T-U, in Old French, and from there became modern English's virtue. So in its original sense, someone with virtue was someone with the qualities of manliness, who was courageous, who could be counted upon to do the right thing. Lacking bravery, courage, honour, etc. made a person immoral. So warriorhood and virtue have always gone hand in hand. Any given society will define rules and codes of ethics that best serve the collective good. The warrior is the one who has to fight for those ethics from both external and internal threats. To effectively function, any given society needs its warrior class to be the epitome of virtue. History shows how quickly societies collapse into chaos when the ruling and warrior classes divorce themselves from the ethics that best serve the common good. The Western Code of Chivalry and the Eastern Code of Bushido are good examples of uh, warrior ethics that were said to best serve the common good. When there's a shift away from the common good to control or oppression, then the days of that society functioning are limited. I mean, not just those societies either, either. I mean, if we look at the Vikings, we can see the same thing. In those societies, an alternative name for the leader or Jarl was a ring giver. 
So rings made out of, you know, silver and gold, you know, Jarl, the leader, would be the guy who gave them out. So generosity was a virtue deemed to serve the common good. The leader was supposed to share the wealth and the spoils, and when they did not, it was generally not long before they were violently replaced. You know, within the Germanic tribes, you have the story of uh, Arminus, also known as Hermann the German, who uh, united the tribes of Germany to defeat the Romans in the battles of Teutoburg Forest. Arminus defeated three entire legions of Roman soldiers and drove the Romans out of Germany. However, just a few years later, after this great victory, he was killed by his own tribe, who felt he was trying to set himself up as a king. So he, he was seeking power for his own ends, and not, as he had done previously, for the common good. Of course, we see this transported into modern democracies too, because where leaders are put in place because the people they leave believe that they will best serve the common good. And when they lose the support of the people, you know, they're voted out, they're replaced. And anyway, the, the point is that warrior ethics can be found in all societies at all points in history. Um, they are defined by what is good for the society and the individuals within it. Moving away from those virtues is generally disastrous for the individual, in the first instance. And societies generally should enough people abandon the moral principles that held that society together. It should be noted that virtue and conformity are not one and the same, though. The common good needs people to be honest and to question the status quo. You know, I've always liked George Bernard Shaw's line, you know, where he said, The reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends upon unreasonable men. So virtue is therefore not a tool of enforcement to make people know their place and toe the party line. To do so is not good for the individual or the common good. We need people who will bravely question and stand against the masses when they believe the current path is not right. Progress depends upon such people. Only bad ideas and falsehoods suffer when questioned. Good ideas and the truth are bolstered when questioned because they invariably prove themselves to be of value. Virtue is also not something meek and mild or simply passively adhering to a set of prohibited actions. To be truly virtuous was always seen as requiring individuals to act strongly, bravely, decisively, and always with the greater good at the forefront of their minds. It also requires thought. You know what I mean? Loyalty can be thought of as a virtue, but what if one has been loyal to a destructive cause? You know, modern soldiers are told to follow orders, but they're also held personally accountable if they follow orders deemed to be unethical or unlawful. Honesty is a virtue too. However, to use a much-used example, would it be morally right to be honest and say to Nazi troops that you were sheltering Jews from persecution? It's obviously not. You know, the right thing there to be would be dishonest, in quotes, and protect the innocents under your care. True virtue sometimes requires nuanced decisions and can't be reduced to a tick list. And we need to keep the objectives in mind. Returning to the virtues of the martial arts, the great Soka Matsumura defined the objectives of martial virtues, from his perspective, in a letter he wrote to his student on the 13th of May, 1882. What follows is the letter in full, although I've sought to remove all potentially confusing Japanese terminology while keeping the same general sentiment. What's important to note is how this legendary karateka sees virtue as a vital and inextricable part of the martial arts. Also notice how he does not list individual virtues, but instead lists the goals of those virtues. And he lists these as the seven virtues of Boo. 
Um, this would underline the idea that the application of virtue can be nuanced. The letter is as follows. If you wish to understand the true essence of the martial arts, you must firmly commit to study. This firm commitment is of vital importance. Literature and the martial arts have much in common. Both have three core elements. With regards to literature, the first two of these three elements are as follows. Number one, an understanding of the words and basic communication. Number two, the learning of history and philosophy as presented in the texts of the past. However, both of these do not allow us to fully realise the true depth of literature until we add the third element, which is number three, the study and application of the morality found in classical texts. This third element is superior to the other two. It will enable you to have a peaceful heart and prevail in all things. These three elements are what is needed to fully realise the nature of literature. When we consider the martial arts, we also find three elements. Number one, a theoretical knowledge of the methods of the martial arts. Number two, the ability to physically apply the martial arts. A person with this level of understanding could be powerful and violent and he could easily defeat others. He could have no self-control and could be dangerous to all those around him. He could also bring harm to himself and bring shame on his family. The third level is what I admire. Number three, the genuine study of the martial arts, which is infused with self-control, virtue and the development of a calm nature. A person who studies the martial arts like this will be virtuous and will be capable of waiting with a calm heart while the immoral destroy themselves. They will be loyal and will never do anything that will cause disharmony. We have seven virtues of Boo. They are, number one, the prohibition of unnecessary violence. Number two, the maintenance of discipline. Number three, the promotion of harmony and order within the population. Number four, the development of good character. Number five, the development of a peaceful nature. Number six, the promotion of peace within the community. Number seven, the promotion of prosperity for all. Our forefathers held these virtues in high regard and passed them on to us. What is supreme in the study of literature is also supreme in the study of the martial arts. We do not just want a theoretical knowledge or an understanding devoid of morality. These words I leave to you, my wise and beloved student, Kuei. So notice how Matsumura is clear that the virtues of the martial arts must not only be good for the individual, but also good for the society of which they are part. For example, a true martial artist must not only have a peaceful nature, but must also maintain peace, harmony and order within the society. This returns us to the original meaning of virtue. You know, one could claim to be peaceful by refusing to engage in conflict. However, if refusing to engage in that conflict would permit those who were violent in nature to harm and oppress others, i.e. destroy the peace and harmony and cause chaos, then one would not be virtuous by taking a passive stance of peaceful, in air quotes, inactivity. I think Matamura does a good job of highlighting the, the qualities we want in the individual alongside the contributions to society we would want that individual to make. Someone who is peaceful in nature, who understands the reality that violence may be required to ensure peace, is virtuous. Someone who is violent in nature is not virtuous. And someone who is peaceful in nature, but lacks the courage to act for peace, is also not virtuous. 
Again, this takes us back to the link between virtue and valour. It's perhaps also worth noting that the word valour has its origins in meaning someone of worth or someone possessing virtue. The seeming contradiction between being peaceful, but while also being prepared to use violence to maintain peace, is brilliantly summed up by Aikido teacher Yukiyoshi Takamura. He said, A pacifist is not really a pacifist if he is unable to make the choice between violence and non-violence. The true warrior who chooses to be a pacifist is willing to stand and die for his principles. People claiming to be pacifists who rationalise to avoid hard training or injury will flee instead of standing and dying for principle. They are just cowards. Only a warrior who has tempered his spirit in conflict and who has confronted himself and his greatest fears can, in my opinion, make the choice to be a true pacifist. Another source of codified martial values is uh, Nitobi Inazo's uh, 1899 book, Bushido the Soul of Japan. You know, it's a fascinating book that all martial artists would do well to read. You know, Theodore Roosevelt was said to be a huge fan of the book and bought many copies for friends and family. Now, the book has its critics and there can be little doubt there's more than a little idealism and more than a little revisionism found within its pages. However, the book has had a great influence on the modern view of Bushido, both in the West and Japan. Whether it's accurate historically is another issue. As well as discussing Bushido, the book also points out common ground found between uh, the warrior ethics uh, of other cultures too, including the medieval code of chivalry and the ancient Greeks and so on. The book contains in-depth discussions on, among other things, the seven or eight virtues of the samurai. There is a chapter on self-control, and not everyone includes this in their list of samurai virtues. There are therefore eight virtues for those who include self-control, and seven for those that don't. So I guess it can be argued that self-control is a requirement for all the others. I.e. a person who lacks self-control is unlikely to act bravely in the face of fear. Um, however, for our purposes, we'll discuss all eight as separate virtues. In the book, Natobi writes, Bushido, then, is the code of moral principles which the samurai were required or instructed to observe. More frequently, it is a code unuttered and unwritten. It was an organic growth of decades and centuries of military endeavours. In order to become a samurai, this code had to be mastered. The eight virtues of Bushido subsequently listed are righteousness, courage, benevolence, respect, sincerity, honour, loyalty, and finally, self-control. So I'd now like to give a brief summation of each of the virtues of Bushido according to Nitobi. So the first one we have is righteousness. Nitobi states that this is the most important virtue of Bushido. In the book, righteousness is expressed as one's power to decide upon a course of conduct in accordance with reason, without wavering, to die when it is right to die, to strike when it is right to strike. For me, what is of key importance is the phrase, in accordance with reason, which infers the need to consider all possible courses of action and then resolutely commit to the one we decide to be right. Our eyes are therefore always on the greater good and the real world effects of our acts and omissions. Now, if, like me, you're a fan of the current crop of Marvel superhero movies, then we can look at Captain America as being a great example of righteousness. You know, to me, that's where his real power comes from. You know, sure he's got the indestructible shield and the greatly enhanced speed and strength, but he's given those because despite his initial physical weakness, 
He always seeks to do what is right, regardless of personal cost. Throughout all the Avengers movies, Captain America is my personal favourite for this reason. Even when the groups of which he is part seek to go down the wrong path, you know, when S.H.I.E.L.D. is compromised, for example, he consistently seeks to do what is right and in line with the greater good, and is never motivated by anger, as the Hulk is, or ego, as Iron Man is, or a desire for glory, as Thor is. His sole motivation is always to do the right thing. In the first movie, just before Captain America is given the super serum, he's advised by its creator that uh, he was chosen for his compassion. And he says that, you know, whatever happens tomorrow, you must promise me one thing, that you will stay who you are, not a perfect soldier, but a good man. So it's his moral code that makes him a hero, and hence the natural leader of the Avengers. As I say, he's my favourite character, and I think he's a good fictional example of what Nitobi deems, quite rightly in my view, to be the warrior's most important virtue. Uh, the next one we have is courage. Now, I think Nelson Mandela's explanation of courage takes some beating. He said, I learned that courage is not the absence of fear, but triumph over it. The brave man is not the one who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. Nitobi also states that courage is only a virtue when it is executed in a cause of righteousness. Um, he quotes the Chinese philosopher Confucius on this. You know, so Confucius said, To see what is right and not to do it is a want of courage. So we can therefore say that courage is doing the right thing irrespective of fear. The next virtue we have is benevolence. So The warrior is someone with the power to kill, and it's obvious that they must be able to care about the plight of others if that power is not to be abused. Nitobi wrote, Love, affection for others, sympathy and pity were ever recognised to be supreme virtues, the highest of all virtues of the human soul. Later in the same chapter, he also states the following. He says, Benevolence to the weak, the downtrodden or the vanquished, was ever extolled as particularly becoming to the samurai. He also said, The cultivation of tender feelings breeds considerate regard for the suffering of others. So as we can see, it's not coarseness and brutality that are extolled as virtues, but love, compassion, and care for the suffering of others. Again, we see that warrior virtues are linked to the well-being of the society of which they are part. The next virtue we have is respect. Respecting others by showing them courtesy and politeness is extolled as a virtue. However, Natobi makes it clear that, Politeness should be the expression of a benevolent regard for the feelings of others. It is a poor virtue if it is motivated only by a fear of offending good taste. In its highest form, politeness approaches love. So we're not talking about you know politeness out of fear, but a genuine desire to have consideration for others. Of course, there can be no doubt that being respectful and polite, while well, a good idea in its own sake, does make people less prone to want to punch you too. Um, so it does have its practical self-defense benefits, you know. But we should notice there's no tough guy macho BS in any of this. Being aloof, dismissive, or rude are not considered to be part of a warrior's true makeup. The next virtue we have is sincerity. Nitobi tells us that lying was deemed a cowardly act. And, and I would agree when it comes to lying for personal gain or to avoid the consequences of your actions. However, we must also remember Sun Tzu's statement in The Art of War that all warfare is based upon deception. There's a huge difference between misleading those who could do harm so good can prevail, as in our hypothetical question from before about the righteousness of being honest if we were hiding um, people from the, the Nazis, 
Um, there's a difference between that and deliberately misleading others for selfish or cowardly ends. Being honest and sincere is vital if you're to be trusted by those around you. It's also something you require from others if you're going to be able to trust them. So sincerity and honesty are needed for any group to thrive. The next virtue we have is honour. So my favourite quote on honour comes from the movie Rob Roy, acted by Liam Nielsen. So the main character is explained to his children what honour is. And he states, Honour is what no man can give you and none can take away. Honour is a man's gift to himself. Why I like this is because it's clear that honour is a personal thing which is not dependent upon what others think of you. It's possible to be reviled for doing what you know to be the right thing. It's also possible to have others misunderstand, misjudge or even deliberately malign you. To have people think ill of you without just cause does not remove honour any more than doing what is wrong to gain the praise of others would give you honour. A little later in the scene, one of Rob's children asks him how you know you have honour. And Rob explains, never worry on the getting of it. It grows in you and speaks to you. All you need to do is listen. Again, this tells us that honour is what we gain from action in a righteous manner. Righteousness having already been defined as deciding on the right course of action and sticking to it resolutely. Of course, the potential negative of honourable action being internally defined is that we can be wrong while simultaneously be convinced we're right. It's therefore important that when we're reasoning as to what righteous action is, uh, to ensure that we've got all the information. It's also important to discern between resolutely sticking to right action and resolutely sticking to action that is not yielding the right results, possibly even harmful results. So while honour is something internal, as in it's not dependent upon the praise or critique of others, we still need to take into account the opinions of others and the effects that our actions will have on others. The opinions of others, regardless of whether we ultimately accept or reject them, will help us reason as to what is right action. And observing the effects of that action and adapting if it's not working, but of course sticking to it if it is working and difficult, you know, it's doing that will help ensure that our actions are honourable. The next virtue is loyalty. So to me, this means fulfilling your obligation to the group such that the group of which you are part can thrive. No regard for the collective whole is ultimately problematic because if the group suffers, all members of the group suffer. We need to be able to count on people in the same way others need to know they can count on us. Loyalty is important for both the individual, the group and society. However, it's important not to confuse loyalty with unthinking slavishness. Uh, Nitobi wrote... Bushido did not require us to make our conscience the slave of any lord or king. A man who sacrificed his own conscience to the capricious will or freak or fancy of a sovereign was accorded a very low place. Such a person was despised as a cringeling who makes court by unscrupulous fawning or as a favourite who steals his master's affections by means of servile compliance. So the loyalty we're talking about is not sycophantic, nor does it require us to do what we personally feel to be wrong. A good leader will ask for honesty in order to best serve the group, which is why honesty is a universal value, pretty much. Um, they will not ask for people to toe the party line under the false guise of loyalty. Such false loyalty ultimately harms a group. The individual within the group must also know that if the group takes the wrong direction, the group and all its members will suffer. So true loyalty to the group 
can be found in refusing to support the group and going with your own conscience. The final one we've got is self-control. So, as already mentioned, self-control is not always listed as one of the virtues of Bushido, and, and it's obviously one to which all the others are related. Nitobi writes, Self-control was universally required of the samurai. The discipline of fortitude on the one hand, instilling endurance without a groan, and the teaching of politeness on the other, requiring us not to mar the pleasure or serenity of another by manifestations of our own sorrow or pain, combined to engender a stoical turn of mind. Nitobi also warns against self-control to the point of fanaticism, self-righteousness, and the denial of our own humanity. He states, Discipline in self-control can easily go too far. It can well repress the genial current of the soul. It can force pliant natures into distortions and monstrosities. It can beget bigotry, breed hypocrisy and blunt affections. Be a virtue ever so noble, it has its counterparts and counterfeits. We must recognise in each virtue its own positive excellence and follow its positive ideal. And the ideal of self-restraint is to keep the mind level. Having covered the virtues, it's probably a good time to address why we should aspire to have and promote these virtues, and to discuss the mechanism by which that may happen. As discussed earlier, a person's character can be defined as the mental and moral qualities distinctive to an individual. Someone with good character could therefore be thought of as someone who has habitually exhibited virtue. As also discussed, there can be benefit to the group when those making up the group act in the group's best interests. There can be no doubt that groups and societies benefit from having virtuous members. The members of the group benefit from the group's success, peace and prosperity that can result. In this way, the individual benefits from their virtue. However, there are other direct ways where the individual benefits from trying to exhibit virtue. One of my favourite quotations of all times is, uh, A man's character is his fate. So that was said by Heraclitus. A man's character is his fate. Our character informs our thinking, our thinking informs our actions, and our actions have consequences. So I don't see a need to invoke karma or similar metaphysical ideas to point out the obvious fact that our characters will have a huge influence on the quality of our lives. We will have a better life when we act in the positive ways that virtue will guide us towards. If we act in a way that is lacking virtue, there's bound to be negative consequences. Now, obviously we're not in total control of our own lives. We share this planet with 7 billion other people and their acts and omissions can impact upon us. Bad things can and do happen to good people. Virtue can't guarantee your protection from that. What virtue will do is ensure that you are best able to navigate the difficulties that come your way and it will also help you capitalise on the opportunities that come your way. To give an example, a person who faces difficulties with courage is far more likely to ensure a positive outcome than the person who lacks courage and instead hopes all their problems will magically resolve themselves. As another example, a person who is both loyal and benevolent will inspire the same in others and will find themselves surrounded by people in their hour of need. A person who never cares about others may well find others delighting in them getting their comeuppance when they face difficulties. I can think of many examples where those who treat others badly ultimately end up with no one around them but those who are equally devoid of virtue. If your network consists solely of those who are cowardly, self-interested, dishonourable, insincere and disrespectful, then it should end badly. Heraclitus was undoubtedly right when he said a man's character is his fate. Away from external benefits, there's also much to be said for being comfortable in your own skin.
There's a comfort, a strength and an alignment we get when we know we're acting in a virtuous way, irrespective of outcome. You know, as the old saying goes, a good deed is its own reward. Indeed, there are studies to show that caring about others and doing kind deeds has a big impact on our own levels of happiness. It feels good to be good. It feels strong when we're strong. And it feels right to be righteous. While short term it can seem like people can benefit from acting in a manner devoid of virtue, it's my view that such people invariably meet with the consequences of their actions at some point. And in the interim, they're rarely happy or content within. There are some times when we need to act against those acting cruelly and without virtue, you know, physical self-defense is an example. And there are other times when it's best to remove ourselves from their sphere of influence and let them bring about their own demise. For example, if you were involved in a relationship with a manipulative narcissist. As Soka Matsumura said in his Seven Virtues of Boo, a person who studies the martial arts like this will be virtuous and will be capable of waiting with a calm heart while the immoral destroy themselves. So there are benefits to the individual, the groups they belong to, and the wider world when people act in a virtuous manner. Now the next thing we need to address is how martial arts can develop these virtues. Yasuhiro Kenichi was bang on the money when he said, Karate aims to build character, improve human behaviour, and cultivate modesty. It does not, however, guarantee it. This is very important. Martial skill and a high dan rank are no indicator of virtue. You know, we should avoid, like the plague, people who would seek to present themselves as a guru or a life coach to their students based on their ability to punch people. The true measure of a person's virtue is their virtue. Dan rank is an irrelevance, and Yasuhiro Kenichi is right that the martial arts does not guarantee character. Never let anyone speak from a position of authority, but instead judge them on their actions and exhibited nature. There was a 2009 study called Martial Arts as a Mental Health Intervention for Children, which concluded that, on average, there is no evidence to support the idea that martial arts practice will promote mental health outcomes such as self-esteem, self-confidence, concentration and self-discipline in children. However, they did note that the average may be a result of the good and bad schools effectively cancelling each other out, i.e. one school does help develop self-control while the other fosters aggression. I'm sure all listening can recount tales where martial arts have done wonders for children. I've certainly seen that many times, and as someone who started practicing the martial arts as a child, I know that it had a hugely positive effect on me. The bottom line, it seems to me, is that this underlines the need to avoid average schools and go to ones that get demonstrable results. It also makes clear there's no automatic link between martial arts and the development of character. On these podcasts, we have frequently discussed the need to carefully define the objective of training and to train to achieve that objective. If the development of virtue and the improvement of character are an objective, then we can't just train in any way we see fit and expect that to magically happen through an unidentified mechanism. To me, martial arts don't inherently develop virtue. What they do provide is an opportunity to test virtue. As an example, martial arts can be scary, turning up for your first class, sitting in grading exams, competing in competitions, hard training, etc., can all trigger a fear response. If we face up to that fear, then we're developing courage. If the training is easy, though, i.e. training's not that hard and belts are given away and so on, then fear will not be instilled, and hence there's no opportunity to show courage. Sincerity is another virtue that can be tested in a good dojo. Instructors and students need to be totally honest about skills, strengths and shortfalls. 
In a good dojo, if the student wants to progress, they need to be entirely objective and that requires a sincere desire to improve. No one likes being told that they suck, or having that made abundantly clear to them through poor performance. An unethical teacher may therefore deliberately encourage delusion in order to feed the student's ego and in order to ensure, at least in the short term, a smaller dropout rate. Students may go along with this because what they really want is just to be able to tell people that they're a black belt. However, in a good dojo, you will need a sincere desire to improve. And as a result, you will have to be objectively honest about your progress and lack thereof. You need to be honest with yourself and you want your instructor to be honest with you. You'll find out that it's only through sincerity that you know real progress can be made. As an aside, that's also the smart choice when it comes to student retention in the long term. People will realise that this is a dojo to go to because it gets results. That the school will develop a good reputation and hence it will ultimately attract more people. If you want to progress in a good dojo, you're going to have to show self-control. You're going to have to turn up for training rather than sit on the couch. You're going to have to push yourself when you'd rather take it easy. You're going to have to keep a level head in emotionally intense situations such as sparring or scenario drills. A good dojo is an intense place to spend time. It will be testing physically, mentally and virtue will also be tested. As a general point, you simply can't develop or demonstrate virtue without testing. I mean, how can you be courageous if you're never exposed to fear? How can you demonstrate benevolence without people in need around you? How can you demonstrate honour without the possibility of being dishonourable? How can you demonstrate self-control without temptation to indulge in things you shouldn't? There's a good scene in the movie Evan Almighty, which is not a good movie overall, but there's a good scene in it where Morgan Freeman is playing the role of God. When talking to the main character's wife, who does not realise she's talking to God, he says the following. He says, Let me ask you something. If someone prays for patience, do you think God gives them patience? Or does he give them the opportunity to be patient? If he prayed for courage, does God give him courage? Or does he give him opportunities to be courageous? If someone prayed for the family to be closer, do you think God zaps them with warm, fuzzy feelings, or does he give them opportunities to love each other? See, I really like the sentiment in that. We don't instantaneously have virtue. We develop it by being in situations that demand virtue. Now, personally, I was once going through a very difficult period, and I'd remarked to a close friend and mentor that this particular situation was going on for much longer than I felt I had the emotional endurance for. Um, he asked me, he says, you know, do you feel you need greater emotional endurance? And you know, I said, I did. And he wisely said, well, there's only one way to develop endurance, and that's to endure. Now, <laughs> the instant he said that, it changed my view of the situation. It, you know, what, what I had was a great opportunity for growth. The situation itself would develop the attributes I needed to navigate it if I approached the situation correctly. You know, as Horace said, you know, he said, uh, Adversity has the effect of eliciting talents which in prosperous circumstances would have lain dormant. I also think this extends to virtue and character. If a dojo is truly committed to developing virtue and character, it will work towards that objective. It will use the austerity and demands of training to test virtue and character. And should there be a failure, as there invariably will be, it will highlight that failure and give subsequent opportunities to try again. If you never fail in a dojo, it's a bad dojo. Butting up against your current limits will mean failure at some point. 
You know, if you lose your bottle when it comes to fighting a given person, then you know the limits of your courage. If you coast during a drill to avoid the unpleasant effects of fatigue, then you know the limits of your self-control. If you fail to help out with some group task at the dojo, such as setting up for an event or cleaning the mats or something, when you'll get benefit from that task and you could have helped out but you just couldn't be bothered, then you know the limits of your loyalty and so on. When it comes to children, I know of some dojo that specifically name the character trait or virtue they will be focusing on as part of that given training session. They'll then do martial drills, exercises and games specifically designed to test courage, teamwork, concentration, discipline and so on. Adults can do a similar thing by taking an honest stock of how they perform in the dojo when it comes to courage, self-control, sincerity, etc. When we more precisely define the goals of training, we are way more likely to achieve those goals. Martial arts, like any other demanding activity, can test us and encourage introspection. If de developing ourselves is part of our training goals, then we'll embrace that testing and then engage in the introspection that follows, you know, as a means to that end. It is that testing and introspection that will develop virtue. However, it's not the martial arts per se that develop character, it's the testing and introspection that they can give rise to that will do that. You know, and of course we shouldn't just limit ourselves to testing and introspection in the dojo alone. Uh, we can hardly said to have developed uh, a virtue if it only exists within the four walls of the dojo. A person is not respectful of others if they show respect in the dojo but behave like a jackass outside of it. Now, Funakoshi's uh, 20 precepts, the eighth one of Funakoshi's 20 precepts was uh, do not think that karate training is only in the dojo. He also wrote, abide by the rules of ethics in your daily life, whether in public or private. So if we are serious about our martial virtues and developing our character, then it needs to infuse and inform who we are and what we do 24 hours a day. Benjamin Franklin had a personal system to develop character that we martial arts types could do well to emulate. From the age of 20, every day in his diary, he would write two things. He would write, what good shall I do this day? And he'd also write, what good have I done this day? He would then reflect on the first question in the morning and the second question in the evening. He also had a list of virtues that he would score himself on. And if I understand his process correctly, he would pick out one particular virtue for special emphasis each day. I think this is a very clever system because it guarantees introspection and ensures that it would be seeking opportunities to display and develop the virtue of the day. Benjamin Franklin's personal list of virtues were as follows. Temperance, eat not to dullness, drink not to elation. Silence, speak not, but what may benefit others or yourself, avoid trifling conversation. Order, let all things have their places, let each part of your business have its time. Resolution. Resolve to perform what you ought, perform without fail what you resolve. Frugality, make no expense but to do good to others or yourself, waste nothing. Industry, lose no time but be always employed in something useful, cut off all unnecessary actions. Sincerity, use no hurtful deceit, think innocently and justly and if you speak, speak accordingly. Justice, wrong none by doing injuries or omitting the benefits that are your duty. Moderation. Avoid extremes. Forbear presenting injuries so much as you think they deserve. Cleanliness. Tolerate no uncleanliness in body, clothes or habitation. Tranquility. Be not disturbed by trifles 
or are incidents common or unavoidable? Chastity. Rarely use venery, but for health or offspring, never to dullness, weakness, or the injury of one's own peace or reputation. And humility, imitate Jesus and Socrates. So obviously that's a different list that we see in our martial sources, but there's a lot of commonality. And I think we could agree that adherence to those virtues would be of benefit to the individual and those around them. It's also hopefully an obvious statement that martial arts are not the only provider of virtues to which we should aspire. This has been a fairly long podcast, but I'll now try to summarise everything we've discussed. So number one, character development can be an intrinsic part of the practice of the martial arts. Number two, you don't need to choose between character development, do, and combative function, jitsu. It's possible to pursue both simultaneously. Three, Virtue is not simply passively refraining from certain thoughts or actions, but instead it requires positive action and should again be synonymous with valour and manliness. 4. The practice of the martial art is not guaranteed to develop character or virtue. 5. It is not possible to display or develop virtue without testing. 6. Martial arts, if sufficiently austere, can provide an opportunity for testing and introspection. However, martial arts are not unique in this, and any demanding activity can do the same. Number seven. If the practice of the martial art is to be a practical way to develop character and virtue, then that needs to be defined as an objective, and the related and required testing and introspection must be carried out in line with the stated objective. Number eight. A person who habitually exhibits virtue can be said to have good character. And number nine. Pursuing good character directly benefits both the individual and those around them. So as I said at the start of this podcast, the philosophy, origin, utility and the nature of virtue is something that's been discussed for eons. And a detailed discussion on the very nature of virtue is something that's beyond me. I nevertheless hope this look at some of the issues surrounding martial arts and virtue has been of interest. And that it's sufficiently raised some talking points even if it's not able to provide any definitive answers. I'm also aware that this is a longer podcast than normal, as you know, the subject matter dictates. So I appreciate you having patience with me and having listened to the very end. Well, patience is also a virtue, of course. <laughs> so if nothing else, you've exhibited a virtue by listening to this podcast on virtue. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I think uh, one final thought I'd just like to add is this idea that um, when we talk about practical martial arts, obviously from a self-defense perspective, that means that it works under the, the stresses of uh, violent conflict and keeps us safe, right? So it's practical, it works. I also think we need to think of things being practical in a wider martial sense as well. So if we're doing the martial arts for our health, then it needs to be practical in developing our health and our fitness, you know. If we're talking about the martial arts as uh, something that enhances life, it needs to be practical in that sense. If we're talking about martial arts developing character, then it needs to be practical in that sense as well. It needs to work. So I, I, I think that when we talk about practical martial arts, we need to think of it in this holistic sense as well. So I, I would hope that some of what we've discussed in the podcast um, helps kind of frame the question 
about how when it comes to the character development side of things that we're practical in that sense too that we we fully understand the objective and we've got means in place to achieve that objective so yeah so i hope that's an additional final thought as well so um thank you very much for listening i i am i am very grateful and um if you could do me a little favor uh, I, it would really help if uh, if you <laughs> i was just about to say if you like the podcast but it occurs that um, if you didn't like it, you wouldn't be listening now. <laughs> you would have clicked it off long before now. Um, so assuming you do like the podcast, it would be very nice if you could write a nice review on iTunes for me because those kind of things really do help. It's a, a, a cost-free way in which you can help kind of further the, the podcast because, you know, they do take a lot of time to produce. And um, as much as I enjoy producing them, I, like everyone else, have only got so many um, hours in the day. So I appreciate those of you who, through... Um, attending seminars, buying books, buying DVDs, um, making donations as well, because you, you can do that by the shopping side uh, of the, the website. You're the ones who kind of finance the whole operation and keep it going. But it's also the, the, the free stuff that really helps as well. So um, simply sharing the podcast with your friends, uh, sending the links out to your club via the club Facebook page, uh, leaving reviews on iTunes, that kind of stuff really, really helps. So if you can help me in, in any way, you know, if you, you are a fan of the podcasts, um, I'd really appreciate it because uh, it enables us just to keep the, the whole thing rolling along. And I say I really, really do enjoy these. Uh, we've nearly been doing them for 10 years now. And I, I, as far as I'm concerned, I'll, I'll keep doing them while people keep listening. So uh, thank you for listening and thank you for your support of them. It is uh, greatly appreciated. So um, until next time then, you know, stay lucky. I hope you have a really good month. Um, I'll see some of you at the seminars and things, of course. And, and for those that don't, I'll, uh, I'll speak to you in a month's time. Okay, take care. Speak soon. Bye.